y'all? My name is Peter. And my name is Carl. And you're listening to Do You Even Lift, Bro? Men Exercising Social Justice. Thank you all so much for tuning in. We deeply appreciate it. We have a guest today. Say hi to the peoples, Bill. Hi, peoples. Awesome. We're going to get to know Bill over the course of the episode, but today we're going to be talking about emotional and spiritual aspects of masculinity. But first, how are you, Carl? I'm good, Peter. I... I don't know. I had a counseling session yesterday, and I think I pulled out of it pretty well. And I'm, I have to learn to embrace transition and uncertainty, which mm-hmm. isn't a traditional practice of mine. So we'll see what happens as the semester goes on, <laughs> as we get busier, as we move into Sexual Assault Awareness Month <laughs> and then graduation. So how about you? Uh, yeah, um, I'm doing okay. I'm pretty tired. This week has been kind of a marathon, so I'm really glad it's over. I'm really glad it's spring break, and I'm just gonna be chilling with my dog for spring break. So I'm really excited about dog. that. Yeah. Whatever. We're not, we're not going to get into that. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> what we're, what we're going to be doing with Bill today is we're going to have a two-part series here. Part one is going to be us sort of intellectualizing emotional work or theorizing about emotional work. And then part two is going to be us sort of practicing that emotional work. And I think Bill will be able to explain it a little better. And we want to start with getting to know Bill a little bit. So Bill, can you tell us a little bit about how you're connected to campus and then some of your salient identities, please? Okay, so I'm Bill Connor. I'm currently a fifth year student in the counseling psychology doctoral program at CSU, which means I do a ton of stuff all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Currently, I'm the lab instructor for the counseling skills courses for the beginning. The first year students in my program, that's one of my favorite things that I do. I also do clinical work, so I have some clients. I do clinical assessments occasionally. I grade papers for Psych 100, um, and I'm working on my dissertation right now. Gross. (laughs) (laughs) I'm actually... I, I really dig my dissertation <laughs> so far, but I'm only a couple months in. Yeah. I imagine I'll get tired of it several times. Um, <laughs> I guess so, it's part of the process. Oh, totally. Totally. Um, but at least for now, I'm going to roll with the good feelings. Word. When it comes to salient identities, let's see. Uh, I'm white. I'm a cisgender male. Um, uh, I'm queer. Um, that's my first time saying that publicly. No All oh, right. Damn. Congrats. Nice job. Thank you. That's exciting. Um, at least this publicly. <laughs> you heard it here first. <laughs> I mean, all four of our listeners, yeah. <laughs> hey, my mom's going to listen to this. <laughs> she knows go. She knows already, though. That's up. <laughs> and uh, I'm various shades of European, but the most salient identity for me in that area is I was raised really Irish Catholic, cool. um, mm. which comes with a lot of... A lot of complications, um, but a lot of guilt. Oh, a lot of guilt. Um, <laughs> but uh, I really come from a lineage of people that really think intensively about morality and justice, um, even though it it's come through in complicated ways in my family's political history. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. Well, thank you for sharing. And can you sort of locate for us why? Well, I forget how it happened, but you and I sort of connected and we're like, you want to come on the podcast? And you're like, oh, yeah. And so when it comes to why is emotional and spiritual aspects of masculinity something that you really connect with? Um, It's it's the work and the and healing that I needed, mm. you know, an undergrad was when I really first got introduced to feminist and anti-racist thought. And it really resonated with me. And, you know, I felt a sense of anger, like this is really messed up that things are like this and it really makes sense. And then all of a sudden it was like, wait, what, what did, what did this do to me? Mm. Yeah. And then like reflecting on so much of my history and figuring out, like having to work through, um, trauma and recovering from, like, I'd really call it recovering from a lot of 
uh, from playing football for 10 years, okay. mm-hmm. my body and uh, took a lot of abuse and um, the depth of homophobia and misogyny that was just normal. Mm. Um, and like what that taught me to to do with different parts of myself and what, what I had to hide from. There's, there's so much there and like the stuff that helped me to heal and to witness other people more fully um, and be good at the work that I do. It, it was just a natural sort of path where the emotional and spiritual spoke to me and was where I felt like I could really find product. I don't want to say productivity. I hate that word, but found real like sense of like progress and like, and, and getting access to my body and hopefully facilitating mm. other people doing the same. Like, okay. so, and, and I'll unpack more of that as we talk. Awesome. There's so much in there. I think it might challenge some folks to, to think about men healing from patriarchy or men healing from our own basically yeah i just want to like re-emphasize that this particular podcast is designed to have these types of conversations that are necessary right we recognize that there's pain and probably and more like i would say tangible like realistically tangible impacts on women and gender non-conforming folks when it comes to patriarchy and stuff like that and part of the solution here to end men's violence against women and gender violence and men's violence against ourselves is to have this particular conversation. So I'm really, really excited to dive in and talk about what does emotional work and healing potentially look like for men and why it's super important to connect to this work. So one of the things that I like what you or that I heard in there, Bill, is this idea of men reconnecting with their bodies. Can you talk a little bit about how it gets disconnected and then why the process of getting reconnected is important. Um, so there's a few things to unpack here. One, the disembodiment is really normal in our cultural culture. Generally it's which it's culture, white culture. Yeah. I'll talk specifically is, about white culture. Gotcha. What um, is disembodiment? Typically, we're a really heady culture and can spend so much of our time just focused on focused on thinking, productivity, entertainment, um, things that are pleasurable to our heads, like like um, like sugar, can actually really can actually really hit you in the brain, sort of. Okay. At least that's how I experience it, and it it feeds a craving that comes from up there. But if you really listen to your body when when you're in those places, you aren't necessarily needing those types of things. Okay, if okay. that makes sense. Yeah, I think what I experience in terms of when it comes to men, one thing that we see is very 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 early men get dissociated from their emotions, and emotions very much live in the body. And so there, there's some data out there. There's some studies that indicate that baby boys up until the age of one have the same amount of emotionality or even potentially more than, um, more than women. And I know I'm talking in gender binary here. This is, this is from the study that I read. And, um, at some point, very early on, boys get start, start getting socialized out of being connected with their emotions aside from maybe anger. Mm, right. Mm-hmm. Um, that's something that starts extremely young. And it's something that I just found. Like I was just always in my head, always, mm. always, always thinking or like feeding my head with music and entertainment and different things. Like accessing my body was the only way I could figure out how to care for myself. And actually, when I started to do it, it really hurt at first. Oh, okay. Say more. You know, the way I interpret it, it is um, I can remember being in this sort of authentic relating group um, that, that I go to in Boulder. Somebody asked me if they could just like massage my shoulders. They could tell I was, I was kind of stressed when I showed up and they started doing it. Then another person came over and like put their hand on my heart. And at first it felt so good. Tears started streaming down my eyes. And then all of a sudden like boiling hot rage, boiling, huh. boiling hot. Like I had to scream. It was so intense. Hmm. Um, and my, my interpretation of that was that I was so unused to receiving 
receiving care and receiving love that like just a basic expression of it that was down to earth and should be normal was actually felt painful. Like I was happy to receive it, but there, it just brought up so much pain with it. So like what you're saying is that boys at a very young age are like conditioned to, I guess, have that reaction to that type of touch or like loving, I guess, compassion. I would guess, at least for me, my sense is that the normalized sort of sort of violence, both like physical and and emotional around masculine socialization takes you so far from understanding what love and care is on a basic embodied level that experiencing it can feel really painful, especially if you haven't experienced it for a long time. And I know for me, I went a long time without it. That reminds me of a conversation I've had in the past, and it was probably actually a podcast episode of the importance of non-sexual intimate touch between men as a process of healing. And so it's cool to hear that my amateur diagnosis of this kind of is like playing out in real life in someone's life. <laughs> it's kind of it's kind of nice to hear. You talked a little bit about emotional hegemony when we met and planned this episode. Can you give us a little definition of emotional hegemony and how that impacts our conversation? First, I'm gonna clarify that we're gonna pronounce it several different ways, <laughs> or try to. Yeah. Um, and emotional hegemony is a term that that was coined by Dr. Allison Jagger. She's actually a philosophy professor at CU in Boulder. She she wrote it in the late 80s, I believe. It was a paper called Love and Knowledge, Emotion and Feminist Epistemology. Hmm. I first read it um, in a course um, with Dr. Cardad Souza, who amazing. I absolutely adore. <laughs> Have to name drop her. Yeah, she's um, amazing. Shout out. An emotional hegemony is this notion that dominant power structures dictate what emotional expressions are okay, and they're typically in line with where power lies. So a really simple uh a really simple example is if you think about managers versus lower level employees, it's much more acceptable for a manager to express anger on the job at other people on the job than it is for a lower level employee hmm. it, because and it, and it and it presents more risk. There is much more material risk like a risk okay. to your actual livelihood for somebody who's in a lower level position in a company to express anger than it is for somebody with more institutional power, perhaps an owner or a manager or something like that. It's interesting because when I think about hegemony or hegemony, I think about its restrictiveness, right? Like it, it's, it's a box that is really tight. And the way men are boxed in, particularly around emotions, is we're not allowed to cry, right? So mm -hmm. when I think about the, the idea of power and who is allowed to emote, my brain actually goes to like sports. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, cannot, I can't Mine get too. my head out of sports. <laughs> God damn it. I don't even know if I like it. I'm pretty sure I was just socialized like it. But <laughs> the point is... <laughs> Ambivalence. Uh, <laughs> the only time I see... Well, one of the few times I see athletes cry, like these are the pinnacle of masculinity. These men are, I think, these cis men are the pinnacle of masculinity in a lot of ways. And I, the, the most emotional state that I think these men are allowed to be in is not just when they win games, but when they win like the biggest game. Yeah. Right. So when you're a Super Bowl champion, a World Series champion, a Stanley Cup champion, I'm missing a sport. World Series. Basket NBA Finals champion. I said World Series. Oh, you did. Like those men who are victorious, I think, are allowed to. Well, I'm, I'm, I guess the ones that lost are also allowed to cry. But in terms of power, like competition and being the best in the sport is a position of power in a lot of ways. I'm wondering if there's a connection between that particular aspect of 
how emotional hegemony shows up in men's lives. I can speak to that a little bit, at least from my experience playing football. Like at the end of every season, we would cry together. And okay. there was something there was something that felt really nice about that. Like like um, football kind, kind of felt like a family in a lot of ways. And you're mm. really like you're really putting your bodies on the line for each other and seeing each other as brothers. And it was the only place that's acceptable for men to slap each other's butts. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, and at the same time, like there were other times where there were there were really 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 messed up things that that either coaches said to me or things that happened to me and and like did not have the support for like dealing with that emotionally so one I can remember really vividly is is being at practice in seventh grade so I'm 12 years old at the time 12 okay and there's a play where one of the players on the other side is chasing my guy and uh, the guy on my side is far enough away from him where I know he's going to score and I don't even need to block this guy. And I just sort of give him a little shove. And my coach just like rips into me, Ugh. rips into me saying, you know, some misogynistic slurs and saying, you take his head off. <laughs> you take his head off. And like, it was one of those things that I recognized as like losing part of my humanity because like mm. in that instance, I calculated like, oh, this dude's not going to get him. I don't need to hit him hard. Mm -hmm. right. I don't even really need to hit him. And from that moment on, like, like I was, I was like a head hunter. That's what, that's what I got socialized into. Okay. Looking back, it's one of those things that like breaks my heart and feels really like, what the yeah. Does yeah. that bleed into other aspects of your life or was it able to be contained in this context of a sport? Um, I, for the most part, I, th I think it stayed contained to sports. I have a lot of anger okay. <laughs> and, and we're planning on talking about anger so we can unpack that some. I, I would say it mostly stayed contained to sports. Like my friend, my, my teammate, Danny, used to tell told me one time, Bill, on the football field, you're the scariest dude I know. Off the football field, you're the least intimidating person I know. <laughs> and I was like... I'm not sure what to do with that. <laughs> I think with sports especially, from what I've seen, I haven't played many sports in my life, but what I saw from like, I was friends with like captains of teams. And what was interesting is that there were certain aspects that you were allowed to take off from the fields and continue with your, and like put in your personality off of the fields, which is like leadership, team, like that sense of community with your team, like a family kind of community with your team and being like, even like humor within sports, I've definitely seen come off of the field and like into the, I would say the school setting, because that's when most of us played sports, I imagine. What's interesting is that a lot of, so th there's that where you're allowed to take that off the field, but there's certain things that you're, you're not allowed to take off the field. Like what, like you said, like becoming an intimidating person outside of football or like, you know, having that violence toward or that headset of violence towards other people off of the field. But I guess my question is, is that valid? Are you, can you do that where you can separate yourself from such like, when I think of football, I think of like dudes just like, like you said, taking each other's heads off. Can you separate that from the field into your, from your personal life? You know, it's hard. It's, it's hard to say generally. Um, I haven't stayed close with people from my football teams, so I haven't really ha unpacked a lot of these conversations. For me, it was it was a hard adjustment discontinuing football because I played for nine full seasons and decided not not to play after that. I could have played lower level college football, um, but it just didn't seem fun anymore. Mm. In my early days of college, I drank a little too much and uh, got in near fights with with other dudes sometimes and just saw some of my edges come out um, in ways that I really, really didn't like. 
Um, and luckily enough, got away from that soon enough and, and found better people. But it, it's, it's a lot to carry, carry with you. And I think I just mostly internalized most of it. Yeah, and I don't know if it's necessarily if or can or should men do it, but I think there's an expectation for us to do it, right? There's an expectation for us to be able to unleash on a sports field, but then contain ourselves off of it. Like mm-hmm. I, I, it might be less about like, is it possible, but more about what's the expectation for men to compartmentalize their emotions in ways that are unhealthy? Yeah. Cause we've been talking about sports for a while, but do you see any other opportunities where it's okay for men to cry outside of sport? This is where I think emotional hegemony helps us get a little bit more nuanced because there are specific domains where men are allowed to cry and specific places and in relationships where they're not allowed to. One thing we see with a lot of, with a lot of men particularly with like heteronormative monogamist culture, a lot of men tend to have like their wives or um, relationship partners talking about like heterosexual men here, or at Mm. least performing heterosexuality men. There you go. Um, (laughs) Tend to have them as their only really emotional and vulnerable connection. Mm. And so we see like really, really high suicide rates amongst men who lose their wives in in later life because Mm. they haven't developed those intimate relationships outside of their marriage that mm. that feed those same things and so we see men sort of compartmentalize emotions to safe places with it where it's typically with other with with women and male friendships tend to be centered around doing things or or drinking or going to sporting events entertainment athletic things they're doing together but not necessarily actually like being in connection with each other mm. so there's a distraction yeah so when men get together it's more of just like let's all be distracted by the same thing instead of like being with each other is that what you're saying yeah a lot of talking about things and as opposed to connecting with each other even when you're having conversations so it's talking about sports it's talking about conceptual things mm-hmm. like being in real-time relationship with each other is well and that's something we don't do very well culturally like 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 sometimes we'll talk about like vulnerable things but like being in real-time connection with emotions that are happening right now like saying like hey carl i feel like really warm towards you right now like how often do people say that to you especially dudes zero <laughs> well one Even now my partner yeah there you go <laughs> i think it's interesting because i think there is a place where men can like talk with themselves but i think the only place that is allowed is when they're in, in either incredibly intoxicated or like incredibly high i would say because i think those are the only spaces in my personal experience where it is allowed for you to be like man i love you guys like you mean so much to me and then like even then i i've seen a lot of pushback of like dude what do you don't be gay right now or something like that and i think it's interesting the, the worst thing you can be with your guy friends is like, quote unquote, gay. Oh, yeah. And even like just asking for a very bare minimum of emotional support or like just trying to get to know your friends, actually. And then they accuse you of being gay, which is like apparently the worst thing to be. When I think about my middle school and high school and undergrad relationships, too, like even the thought of opening up to those guys, I'm like struck with fear you know what i mean like yeah. uh-huh. there's 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 a definite block there of even if i wanted to express i don't so one i don't even know if i could accurately express my emotions because i've like tamped them down for so long i've lost my barometer for feeling what like i, I can't name my own yeah much less trying to do that with my cis men straight dude wait with my hetero cis men friends mm. and friends <laughs> I don't, whatever. The bros. The point is, yes. <laughs> I should have said that. <laughs> the point is, even like, 
10 years removed from that, I'm struck with fear of the idea of telling them like, I'm struggling with X. Yeah. Yeah. I, I lost a lot of friends just because like, I didn't know how to sustain like an intimate relationship. And I didn't like, like hearing you talk about that. I'm like, yeah, it took me like years of work to get to a place where I can track what's, what's happening emotionally and what that means for me in my relationships and like use it to deepen relationships with people. That's just something I'm figuring out now. And I've been studying this stuff intensively for years at this point. Mm. When I think about men connecting, I put air quotes. I don't know. <laughs> Whatever. The point is, we're on a podcast. Nobody can see. <laughs> nobody <that>. can see. <laughs> uh, so I put it around men connecting. I think a lot about how like there's two ways to avoid discomfort between men one is to fight it out mm. and another one is i hear often like oh he just needs to get laid or something like that right so what parts of emotional hegemony is connected to the ways men actually do express wanting to connect to each other that are potentially unhealthy like fight it out and you'll get closer or like something something that just flew out of my head get laid Kind of, but that's not like with each other, right? Like, yeah. Yeah. Or like going to the bars and like, I'm going to get you laid kind of thing. Yeah, maybe. Hmm. You know, I'm a little perplexed by the question. I'll see. We'll see what I can unpack. So there's there's some hyper compartmentalization with emotions, emotions for men. Um, and some of that goes along with with capitalism. Like you're supposed to leave so many parts of yourself at the door when you walk into when you walk into mm. the job. OK. Mm. Um, and that's that's so normal that people don't even recognize it. Right. And, um, you know, decision making for men is so, supposed to be divorced from emotions. And then it's only at the point where that that they become super intense that people are either like okay we have to fight it out like if you're getting to a point where you feel like you need to fight with each other you've been carrying for a while at that point right mm -hmm. yeah because it doesn't actually solve anything right like if there's tension between men and the solution is to fight it out and then like i don't know like i don't understand how that resolves anything and so i want to dig more into like when men are angry in general which i don't ever know if they're angry at each other or they're just angry because like they're empty <laughs> yeah but it and it's so hard to tell sometimes because yeah. when it comes out in those explosive ways, usually there's like several things happening and you might have a fight with a friend where they name like eight different things that are happening and then also talk about other things that are happening in their life. And you're like, I hear you. I do not know what to do with that. Right. When we're not caring for each other our entire lives and then someone suddenly asks you to care for them, I think that'd be really difficult to handle. What it's got me thinking about is a lot of our coercive sort of emotional experiences growing up that, that are really typical. So a lot of times, um, if say you express sadness growing up, you might hear from a parent or a teacher or whatever. What do you have to be sad about? Other people are mm, starving, okay. that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Or if you are dissatisfied with something, oh, you should feel grateful. Um, and it's okay. all these things where you have these relatively mundane understandable emotional experiences but you get these really severe messages that you shouldn't feel that way so mm -hmm. like i have cancer well at least you can afford treatment look on the bright side type of stuff oh god yeah look on the bright side stuff oh do can we unpack positive thinking please let's do it so don't don't get me wrong i think there's a very healthy way to do positive thinking but what i see in sort of the popular positive thinking culture is really bypassing difficult emotions and sometimes mm. just a subtler version of those messages like you should feel grateful good vibes man it's all about those good vibes e exactly right. <laughs> yeah. okay so yeah. like don't ruin my high type of 
or is that different? Don't kill my vibe. Some some of that. Okay. Some of that. The healthy way to, in my view, to respond to emotions positively is just respond to emotions with a way that provides care and recognition. So say if I feel sadness, a, a healthy way to respond to that is just to recognize it and say, oh, I feel sadness. What do I need? I need some type of care. I could use some connection right now. Something mm-hmm. that actually responds to the feeling itself as opposed to trying to make the feeling go away. Making the feeling go away is where we get into trouble with positive thinking. Okay. Because mm-hmm. it's, oh, I feel sad. Sadness is bad. I have to make it go away. And I then, do that all the time. Yeah. 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 And you, su- you suppress. <laughs> That's not what to do. You suppress. You suppress. <laughs> and then eventually it just doesn't work anymore. And then it comes and then it then you spin sort of out of control. You can get caught up in anxiety doing that. Hmm. It's a reflection of those coercive things that where you learn that sadness isn't okay to to express because it might be uncomfortable for the people around you or they're setting these expectations where they, they don't know what to do with it because they've had it socialized out of them. So they don't want you to have it either. Hmm. So positive thinking as is currently employed is more about the person trying to avoid they're making it about themselves like someone's revealing that they're sad or whatever or expressing some sort of emotion to someone that they trust and then that person's like i don't want to deal with it so i'm going to make you think about like the positive side of whatever yeah and it can be in that relationship and it can be in how we relate to ourselves so there are a lot of people who okay. are really into positive thinking that is that uh, way of, of suppressing okay. emotions so you end up internalizing it you might read a self-help book that has that sort of perspective mm. um, or try to cultivate gratitude every day and there's nothing wrong with gratitude, but typically we look at it and it's like, okay, well, I have to come up with things to be grateful for. The truth in that exercise is, is when you try to come up with gratitude and then you really search for it in your body and you're finding, you're finding these barriers to it, those barriers and those painful things that come up are are where the real work is. But if you try to suppress those and just surface Mm -hmm. level, well, I'm grateful for this. I'm grateful for this. You're bypassing where the, where the real work is. Okay. I think what's interesting about a lot of this conversation, and I think a lot of barrier that comes up for me is that I always try to find a solution and I think there's always like a way to fix things and so when I'm feeling sad I see that as a problem and there's got to be a solution to that and that solution in my mind is not like actually dealing with the emotions (laughs) and like recognizing that I'm sad I'm like oh there are certain things that make me happy so like for me my binary brain works like sad is bad get happy kind of thing find a solution yeah Yeah. When we were talking about the fighting part um, where it's like you got to fight it out or there's like you got to have like this crazy altercation. I think that's men desperately searching for a solution that's easy to find and less painful than actually like doing the work in my mind. Very astute, Peter. Yeah, no, no. I think, I think that's on point, man. A broken clock is right twice a day. Oh, don't. Oh, we're going to we're gonna talk about you calling yourself broken. Oh. <laughs> Stay, Stay tuned. tuned. <laughs> I want to talk about anger. Let's do it. Um, oh. So we were talking a little bit about anger on the, like, the football field, um, fighting with friends. Because I've been socialized to think that anger is the only emotion that men can express and be validated for. And so we talked about anger as kind of two things or what do you, what, what do you want? To, what is anger? <laughs> what, what, what is anger? anger? Big what question. Anger? Big question. <laughs> and, and anger is anger might be the most gendered, most intensely gendered emotion. At least mm. I've seen it so much with therapy clients, hmm. a lot with people who are raised, uh, raised feminine uh, and traditional feminine values. Uh, get so many messages that anger isn't okay. Mm. And anger 
So, so little, little theoretical thing. So thinking about primary versus secondary emotions, primary emotions are thought of as adaptive and healthy, normal um, human responses to situations in your life. So feeling, feeling joy when you're um, connected with somebody you love versus feeling sad when, when you lose somebody you love. Mm. Or feeling angry when somebody is hurting you or something you care about. That's a primary adaptive experience of it. Anger can also be a secondary emotion, which is when anger is easier and more accessible than the primary emotion that you feel in a situation. Mm. So what can happen with men, more vulnerable emotions around fear and sadness can all get balled up into anger. And so you carry a lot of carry a lot of anger, but you, you have difficulty connecting to the sadness or, or hurt that might be underneath that. That makes sense. So the real feeling that you're feeling may be sadness and fear, but what you're expressing is anger is what you're saying. Yeah. And what, what you can actually access and connect with. So I've had it before. I do an emotion exercise with, with clients where I go through the four, what are thought of as uh, like four primary emotions, which are sadness, joy, fear, anger. There, there are other emotions, obviously, but it's just a good, mm -hmm. good basic set to go through. And what, what I'll see sometimes is asking a man to connect with sadness and getting a pang of sadness. And then all of a sudden, like a lot of anger coming up with it. Okay. And it's not to say that the anger isn't necessarily justified, but there's not access to the sadness that might go along with it or being able to get a more nuanced perception of it. Yeah. And what I've seen especially with anger and with my friends this is kind of a meme where it's like white frat boys punching walls and like <laughs> punching drywall and stuff like that. Okay. And cause I, when I think of like men internalizing emotions and expressing it through anger, I always think of displacement of especially a fist going through drywall. Cause I don't know, I've, I've seen so many of my friends and this kind of spans uh, among all genders who like, they feel such an intense emotion, like sadness or fear. And I don't think it's anger. Anger might be a part of it, but it's always displaced with their hand going through a wall. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I have to confess. I broke my hand punching a wall when I, when I was an undergrad. Uh, I mean, I'm definitely like physically like I don't know. That's an example of secondary anger, right? Potentially. 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 Taking it out violently is something that I can't figure out if I was taught is like a way to deal with it, a safer way to deal with it, even though it's not necessarily safe. Mm. But like I've also have found it helpful in the past, right? Like punch a pillow a bunch of times, yell into a pillow. Yeah. Is it taught to us or is that an act of rebellion? Ooh. Yes. We <laughs> it depends as it, all it, things it, do. It does depend. And, you know, the thing with like punching pillows or like smashing plates, even if you do it in a, in a way where it's sort of sanctioned and safe, because there are places where you can do that. And some some therapists will encourage people to do that. Yeah. When I'm working with anger, what I'm looking for is what is it connected to? Mm -hmm. Are you carrying old anger that's from old situations, potentially trauma or abusive environments, things like that? Or is it tied to current relationships or current political structures? and what do you do with it? Mm -hmm. Because the healthy thing with anger is to recognize what is it pointing to? Is it pointing to, hey, my partner in my relationship is doing this thing that, that hurts me and I need to share that with them in a way that, that's fair to them and that they can hear? Mm. I think that's a location where socially conscious men, at least, struggle a lot in relationships is like we're told men's anger is a result of a lot of violence. And so I think the reaction then is to say, I shouldn't be angry. Yeah. And then that really hits, I think, in intimate partner relationships in the sense of like, I need to not be angry here because of of all these things that I've learned. But again, 
I think the healthy thing to do is to act is to express that anger in a way that like is communally based, right? Opposed to individually focused. And that can be really difficult to do because you feel like you're putting your relationship at risk when I would argue that you would absolutely strengthen the relationship by expressing your frustrations. Yeah. Yeah. And and we're so caught up in in our thinking and interpretations that when it comes to conflict, we typically go into story and blame and accusation and that's quickly where you escalate and you're and you're not actually connecting to each other and if you can actually slow down and be like okay i'm actually i'm i'm feeling angry right now (sighs) (laughs) yeah yeah and actually express your anger while simultaneously keeping it contained because when you translate it into well you're throwing this thing at me i'm gonna throw this thing back at you you're Mm -hmm. you're expressing your anger but you're not keeping it contained and you're not communicating clearly what's what's happening and if you can just slow down and say "I'm, i'm feeling angry right now and I want to make sure that I slow down so we don't end up like hurting each other right now. That sounds really simple. That's hard to learn. Yeah, that sounds impossible, moment. actually. <laughs> it's like what Sonia said. It's simple, but it ain't easy. Yeah. One of the tools that I love, because I think part of what we want to do is provide some level of skill to do the things that we're talking about. One of the things that I love is um, there's a bunch of emotion and feeling wheels that are out there. And they just named so many emotions that I would never have been able to name myself, right? So even on, in this emotion wheel, under the category of anger, there's rage, exasperation, envy, resentfulness, jealous, uh, revolted, like dread. These types of words and these types of wheels and tools have really helped me in my emotional journey of at least being able to name the stuff that's happening because like we keep saying joy and sad. <laughs> Those yeah. are like the only two yep. emotions that we're able to name as a group of cis men. And so <laughs> think these just having this emotion wheel, I think like I would definitely check it out and then start using that to to start caring for yourself and start healing. The emotion wheel is a tool, right, for us to use. And I think Peter and I would be remiss to do all this intellectualizing around emotions without actually doing the work. So oh, stay yay. tuned for part two. <laughs> Bill is gonna take us through some level of hopefully healing and <laughs> no pressure. Yeah, we'll so see what hopefully happens. stay tuned for that. will do it for this episode of Deep and Lift Bro Men Exercising Social Justice. If you have feedback, thoughts, comments, questions, or want to be interviewed for a podcast, please email WGAC at colostate.edu. That's WGAC at C-O-L-O-S-T-A-T-E E-D-U. Huge shout out to the partnership between the Women and Gender Advocacy Center and KCSU here at Colorado State University. These are the folks that even allow this podcast to happen. For more content about masculinities, check out meninthemovement.blogspot.com. And for more information about the WGAC, go to WGAC.colostate.edu. For more 90.5 KCSU content, go to kcsufm.com music production by xavier hadley aka zavley check him out at soundcloud.com slash xavier hadley that's x-a-v-i-e-r-h-a-d-l-e-y thanks for listening and catching part two Woo! where's your brain at I don't know. <laughs> it's with my boss right now. That's uh, a good point. <laughs> I, I can go. I can. <laughs>